0: Welcome to episode 35 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. This episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to present an oral history from an American who went on a delegation to China in 1971. She went as a Quaker peace activist and after a few months came back to the United States a convinced Maoist. And um, just to give you some information, uh, she's going to give you a lot of her own earlier biographical details uh, at the beginning of the interview. Um, The person I'm interviewing was named Monica Shea. Uh, She was named Monica Newbold uh, before she got married, which is the name she had when she went to China. When I interviewed her, it was uh, important to her that uh, people know that it was, mo- that the interviews with Monica Newbold, just in case they re- were on the delegation or heard of it and, uh, would know who she was. Um, she also, in political work, uh, often used the name Catherine. Um, she, we don't really get into much of what she did after she got back from China, at least after the initial period. But in the 1980s and early 1990s, she was very involved in, uh, the movement in the Lower East Side of New York City uh, around uh, Tompkins Square and with the squatters and uh, the struggle against homelessness. And then from 1996 until her death in 2011 was very involved in the movement against police brutality, in particular uh, working with families of people who had been killed by the police in the United States and working with those families to get their voices heard um, in the media, and to get their demands out there. So um, let me, before we just jump into the oral history here, let me give you a little bit of context for the interview. Um, this interview was conducted in 2005, so 15 years ago, um, as part of the research for um, what was at the time my dissertation, and then later on the interview was also used uh, for my book, which was sort of a modified and amplified form of my dissertation, Trans-Pacific Revolutionaries, the Chinese Revolution in Latin America. So the idea behind the interview was more that I was asking questions to get some answers for things that I had particular questions about for my research, not so much to take down an oral history for posterity's sake or to be published or released uh, as we're doing now as a podcast. So, um, you know, it's somewhat different than how I would do it if my original intention had been, uh, you know, to release it as a podcast. You know, for example, I didn't follow up on certain things that uh, I know would be of interest to uh, some of the listeners or to myself. Uh, either because, um, you know, I already knew the answer or I was trying to sort of economically use the time we had to focus on specific questions that I needed answered, answered for my research. So, in other words, the, the interview wasn't conducted with any audience in mind beyond myself and my own uh, research needs. Um, however, despite that, I think there's just a lot of value to the, to the interview. And uh, I think our listeners will get a lot out of it. Otherwise, of course, I wouldn't. Be releasing it. Um, another thing to note, it was done on an old 90 minute cassette tape, 45 minutes on each side, um, outdoors in Manhattan. Uh, so there's actually not a lot of background na- noise, but there is, um, you know, just sort of the quality that comes with those old cassette tapes, um, including a break in the middle where I had to turn over the cassettes. Um, so The quality isn't quite up to what one would really want, but the content is worth it. Um, and so I, I think if you've enjoyed past episodes of this podcast, I think you will, um, like the interview or you'll, if you don't like it, you'll get something out of it or learn something. Um, and, um, just in case you're curious, I did, um, I know I don't sort of in general view the oral history research that i did for my book um as just sort of fair game to release on the podcast um but um i did go and uh, get permission from uh from uh, monica's um family to uh to release the interview in this form um and uh you know most of the there might be some other oral histories i did that we'll be releasing in the future. The thing is most of my research was done in Spanish, and this is a, an English language podcast. Most of my work was, of course, in Mexico, Bolivia, and Peru, which were the, the case studies I did for my book. Um, so I don't know. We might be seeing some more of these in the future. This might be a one-off. We'll see. Um, certainly there's still some people out there who are alive that if I were able to get an interview with them, I would um, love to do ones that were just... Uh, you know, done specifically for this podcast. Um, so, anyways, that's a whole other story. We'll see if something materializes in the future. Um, one other thing to say about the interview uh, before we jump in uh, is clearly a little advanced of where we are right now in the podcast narrative. Uh, some listeners may want to come back and listen to it again once we've gotten up to the 1970s. Right. Uh, Monica traveled in 1971, so she's going to be referring to things in terms of the development of both the Chinese Revolution and the international influence of the Chinese Revolution that we really haven't covered the background for. Uh, But I didn't want to wait to release this interview because it's, I think it'll give listeners an idea of a whole phenomenon. That was a part of the movement of the 1960s and 70s that really doesn't exist today. It's a real window into the sort of development that went on back when China was socialist and sort of the global reach and inspiration that those ideas had, and which is really the overall theme of this podcast. So I I just didn't want to wait to share it with you. Um, So let's see couple other things to cover before we jump in there are some names that come up some of you might not be familiar with um i'll also put those in the show notes uh bill hinton comes up a few times he was the author of a book named uh fan shen uh which was very influential in um teaching people internationally about the chinese revolution and was a very supportive book and uh Won a lot of people to be interested in the Chinese revolution. Uh, he wrote a number of other books as well on China that are worth checking out. Um, most of them, I think, published and probably still in print uh, with Monthly Review Press. Um, uh, another name, Chongqing, comes up a couple times. That was uh, Mao's wife or his, uh, his last wife. Um, and she was one of the leaders of sort of the radical Maoist faction during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, an acronym that gets used a bunch is the RU, which stood for Revolutionary Union, which was a group in the United States, a communist group in the United States, which was pro-China. Um, and there's a place, an agricultural commune, where Monica went and spent some time that she mentions called Dajai, which was considered a very advanced uh, agricultural commune, and there's a group there called the Iron Girls that Monica spent time with, which was a, an all-woman uh, political group and uh, work team at Dajai. Anyways, those will be in the show notes as well, and uh, let's jump into the interview. I guess my first question is, going back, you know, going back 30 years, how, how did you become interested in going to visit China.
1: Well, how did I get to go? Or how,
0: well, how did you even be? How did you, you become interested in getting to go to China? What made you want to go to China? Right.
1: Well, my uh, parents were. Part, my mother uh, had a philosophy teacher uh, at Temple University. whose name was Barrows Dunham, and he was a communist, and he was uh, blackballed in. Uh, he was actually, was a certain period of time, he was not allowed to teach at Temple University. And so during that period, uh, my parents and possibly other people would organize uh, circles in their own homes where he would come and talk and give lectures and then people would collect up money or whatever, and that was part of how he got supported. Well, he, uh, part of this circle of intellectuals and um Interest in, and sort of just, I don't know, it was sort of people who were into all kinds of things, you know, like, not only just the politics, but the sort of the designers, and you know, just sort of a combination of intellectuals, really. Um, but one of them was William Hinton. And so, William Hinton came to these discussion groups, and then through him, they got to know sort of what was then the China Circle, which was rather limited, but it was, uh, Ida Pruitt, who wrote, uh, actually I'm not sure what, what, No, I'm not sure the name of her book, but she was a daughter of a missionary that went to China and she lived in China in the revolutionary period. Um, Adele and uh, Alan Rickert, who were uh, uh, prisoners in China, I guess right after, right during liberation and immediately after, who wrote Prisoners of Liberation, and uh, Maud Russell, who did the For Reporter. So they knew them, and then those people in turn came and gave talks At my parents' house. So even just growing up, and then of course Bill Hinton's mother, Carmelita, uh, also was part of trips to China and things like that. So I remember growing up as a kid and and seeing slideshows of China in my living room and, and talks by these people. So it was kind of part of the background of just this was another place that was, you know, interesting things going on. But it wasn't really differentiated between China and Russia and Cuba and just stuff happening in the world um but then uh and then later, when I was in high school actually uh hinton's uh, nephews nieces and nephews we were we played with them all the time, and so they were a little more even more politically savvy than I was and, and uh, the, the older boy in particular was really paying attention to a lot of stuff that was going on in china and then Fen Shen so this when I was in high school it was like the sixties um like I was sixth grade, in 1963, and then I graduated high school in 1970. So during that whole period was the period of the 60s, and people were a lot more talking about, you know, revolution and what was going on, whatever. And then these people were saying, particularly what was happening in China, and what was going on in the Cultural Revolution and all that stuff, and they were more up on it and, and knowing what was happening. Um, but I knew uh, Bill's mother, Carmelita Hinton, and I knew her because she was part of the Writing Peace Association, And I went with my mother to the various anti-Vietnam War protests. And I was part of the Reading Peace Association, I was part of the Potsdam Peace Group, and my mother was very active and went to all the anti-war protests. So Carmelita Hinton knew me, and she knew me better than she knew my brothers. And at a certain point, which was 1971, it was after the ping-pong team, but before Nixon, she got permission from the Chinese government to organize a trip of young people to go to China. Which, the, the group that went were people that she knew and that she recommended. So it included the Hinton nieces and nephews. It included people who had gone to Putney School in Vermont, which is a, a school that she organized, and friends of the family and people like that. But she, she particularly wanted me to go because she thought I was a, a promising young person, you know, of whatever and the requirements of the people on this trip was that you had to just be of goodwill to China you, you, you didn't have to believe in what was going on or know that much about what was going on but you had to at least be open minded towards what was going on in China and so she raised through my mother did I want to go and this would have been my sophomore year in college 1971 to 1972 and uh, at. I said yes. You know, at the time I sort of saw it kind of as just an exciting thing to do, an interesting thing to do. Um, you know, to some extent, uh, I, I, I grasped it was different from just, say, going to France or going to Germany or something like that, but, it, but on some levels I didn't, you know. It was a little bit like, I want to go for a trip, I want to go somewhere really interesting, this is some place that really interesting things are happening. My older brother uh, had, had left college. For a year and tried to go to Cuba but he couldn't get into Cuba and he ended up going to Mexico instead so some of it was like this is what you do you know you, you go and you see places and you see what's happening and you kind of understand what's going on around the world so it's like the opening happened and I said sure I'll do it
0: so you went in 1971 right I
1: was there yeah I was actually the year. sometimes I'm amazed the years I was there the time I was there I think it was like the best possible time to be there um, because I went, I was there from August of 1971 to through the end of January 1972. So I was there, I got there two weeks after Lin Piao fell, and, I, and, and of course we were after the ping pong team, but when I left and came home was when Nixon was going over. So I actually think, and of course I didn't understand this at the time, but I actually think I got the best years because the fighting, the sort of the confusion and the factional fighting and all that stuff was sort of done with. We sort of were at the point where like there was a lot of results and like good things that were happening and it was sort of in full flower and I left before stuff started to turn and go the other direction. You know, but at the time I didn't know that. I just thought, hey this is great, this is wonderful, you know. But I was there for uh, four and a half months and uh, At this really at this time, when uh, just a tremendous amount of openness too of like what was going on.
0: Can you can you describe the trip? Can you talk about where you went, what you saw, that sort of thing?
1: Yes, Um, we we came in uh, we came in through Canton. We first went to Beijing. Uh, We traveled a bit around. In that region, we went. Um, we spent a month living and working in Dajai and we, at that time, we traveled. We did a lot of sort of the, what was the agricultural, you know, situation, t- traveling to different brigades and different communes in that in that region. Out always what we, pretty much what we would do is we would work in the morning in the fields and then we, in the afternoon we'd go and visit some place and, you know, have a talk or a lecture or whatever. And then in the middle month we did just a lot of traveling, which I don't, I mean, just, I'm not exactly sure geographically where we went. We just saw a lot of different things. But I know we went, we ended up, where we ended up in the third month when we were in Shanghai. And we went to, before we got there, we went to, uh, uh, Nanking and Yunnan and then we ended up in Shanghai and in Shanghai we lived and worked in a factory in Shanghai and then I got allergic to the dust and we worked at number 17 cotton mill factory which was one of the advanced places in the Cultural Revolution I was kind of not having a good time with the, uh, some of the dust or whatever in the air so I actually asked to be work in the nursery there so that's kind of the sort of what we did. We actually, uh, we actually had a lot of range or motion in terms of determining w- what places we visited. Uh, a lot of that I didn't get so much involved in because I didn't really know enough. But there were people on my trip who did. There were people who kind of read a lot about China and what was going on and followed things. And so they would ask. They were the ones who asked to go to Dajai or asked to go to this factory or whatever. Um, basically, they would, they would ask about things that were happening and they'd ask to go uh, to these places... And uh, again, something I didn't understand then, but I came to understand was that there was struggle among our, even our translators, uh, uh, with people guiding the tour. I think it was a combination. And now that, you know, looking back on it, you go, know, it was a combination of clearly like revolutionary minded young people who had been promoted through the Cultural Revolution and sort of the old guard. that were kind of our, our, our team that traveled with us because like the older translator who was like the head guy He really didn't want us to go and live and work in the commune or go and live and work in the factory. He was really encouraging us to take a trip down the MC and see the beautiful sights and stuff like that. And it was actually the people on my group who really argued for it and there was enough at the time of motion or whatever that people said let them do what they want. You know, they want to do this, let them see that. So we actually got to go and do a lot of things that you know, I, I get the sense later groups were even a lot more choreographed than ours was. Um, but, um, part of it is just even the whole experience, like, like, even coming into the country, you know what I mean? It's like, there was that old, that's old Prairie Fire song, you know, got to the border, and we began to walk at, under two flags flying. Uh, you know, then one, I forget, one was the, the bloody British rag of imperialism. And one was the the shining red flag of socialism, right? And it's it's true. It's like you cross the border, and it's like you immediately know you're in a totally different place. More than uh, you know, it, it was it was. I mean, it's a combination of not just the red flags flying, which was part of it, but also the billboards of being like, you know, billboards and posters of of, of slogans and, and pictures, and you know, the PLA and the people of the world and all that kind of, you know, sort of constantly the, the borders and, the, and the, the posters and all that. Um, as you come into the airports, which uh, for some reason I remember it more in Beijing and Shanghai but than I do in Canton. I don't remember when we crossed the uh, border there. I don't, I don't remember that part. But particularly I remember at the airports, I remember like tables, just rows and rows of tables just loaded up with uh, literature, you know, uh, marxist Leninism literature. You know, the, all the collected works and the this and the that, you know, Lenin, Stalin, you know, Marx, Engels, you know, Mao, and the Red Books and all that, Into all these different languages, and you could just, you know, take them, you know. So, I mean, part of a huge part of my collection was, like, you just went around and took stuff and you brought it back with you, you know. Um, but the other part of that was the, the the political life on a daily basis that you kind of engaged at every step. You know, in other words, uh, going into the hotel, uh, in, even in when you first entered in Canton, you know, you, you're, you're going into a hotel. But not only are the, is there the literature and all that kind of stuff there, but it's also that you can engage in political conversation with the hotel workers. You know, about like what's your life like? What's you know, what do you do? What do you think? What, you know, and I, I think one thing that just really struck me all the time I was there, and, and kind of something I remember a lot is like how uh interested people were in the world you know it was just like it was, it was, you know and we were visitors and at that time a lot of people in china hadn't seen westerners i mean most places a lot of places we went people hadn't actually seen westerners so people would, like the little kids would come up and stare at you and stuff like that or whatever just people would kind of gather around but even so people knew like people would come up to you and they'd say they might ask questions like uh they might say things like, "Well, how did your landlords treat you?" or "What's the life of the peasants like in in in, in the USA?" But they would also ask questions like, well, "What's the Black Panther Party doing?" and uh, you know, "What's happening with uh, SDS and whatever?" And this would be like not like the political people. It wasn't like you went somewhere and there's political people and they asked you these questions. This would be people that you're like walking around the streets or like you know you're in the hotel or you're on the train or you know what I mean. It was just like sort of a very lively very alive place where people were actually engaged in the world and engaged in, in thinking about things which just was like so amazing I mean...
0: so you initially you took a flight to Hong Kong you Ooh, yeah, right. went over in by Canton, train. On train by train yeah. and then you flew immediately to Beijing, or you
1: somehow pretty quickly we went to Beijing. I'm I'm trying. I don't know why that was. I don't know why we went from Canton pretty immediately to Beijing, but I know that we ended up there. Uh, well, maybe it wasn't even all that. Maybe we did some visiting first. We visited schools and some other things first. Because I I remember that we were in Beijing on National Day, so that's October first. So uh, and we had come in at the end of August. So there must have been sometime in between, and you know, I don't quite place exactly where we were.
0: What, what, what was life like in Dajai as a, living there as a foreigner for a month?
1: Uh, one thing was they were, uh, I mean, part of it everywhere, and this is true, everywhere you went, everywhere you went, I mean, the phrase was sort of like warmly welcome the American visitors. <laughs> you know, it's like, just like as soon as she showed up, they'd have the gongs and the, the you know, the cymbals and uh, everything, and it was like the drums and, and the, everything. They'd be like, let's warmly welcome to the American visitors, you know. It's like it's just sort of a constant phrase. But, uh, and then, uh, like, if you went to visit, you know, any workplace or, or anything, they'd put on a skit for you do do songs and dance. People would come out and do songs and dances for you, you know, for our American, you know, visitors. And it was a, a pretty constant refrain that they were very clear on, too, that, like, uh, we don't like what the American government is doing, particularly in Vietnam. But we know that the American people are good. You know that was like a really strong refrain. But like certainly in Dajae, they were very—they um, welcomed us in, and they were really like trying to uh, teach us and help us and explain. Like the the uh, actually something I still do. Like one of the things we do when we were cutting uh, sorghum in the fields, and you you know you grab the stalk and you cut it with a, a, a machete. You know, and, and part of what you do is you go like, Lu Chi, <laughs> Lu you yeah. uh, that's Shikari, you know. But you'd also like say political slogans. And it's sort of like sometimes when I'm really kind of not in a good rhythm or something like that, sometimes it's kind of like, I'll still like do something where I say a, a political slogan as I'm trying to do it just because it gets the rhythm going, you know, but it's just it's something I remember from, from then. Uh, but we would actually sing, we'd be working in the fields, and they would be trying to teach us Chinese, Chinese, uh, phrases, but they'd also be teaching us the songs, you know, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, biggest one, one was the, um, actually one sung all over the place at that time was the Tang Feng Shui, The um, so it's the, um, Tang Feng Shui, is it the people of the world? Who should be afraid of whom? Who should be afraid is it people of the world that should be afraid of the imperialists and the imperialists should be afraid of the people of the world? Then it's the mayor. So it's it's the imperialists will be defeated. Uh Then the people of the world will show their triumph. So there'd be a whole, like, song, you know, you're singing this as you're cutting the cane and t- singing this as you're doing stuff, carrying it down the mountains or whatever. But also, uh, you know, then, again, if you do a cultural performance or whatever, then this would be done and it would dance danced to and, you know, sang and all that. And then, in turn, the other thing they would do is every time we went and they sang and performed for us, and they'd say, okay, now you perform for us. <laughs> So they'd always, in turn, ask us to sing and dance, so that it would be like kind of trying to get create a cultural exchange. So um, it was kind of, you know, and, and we were like limited. <laughs> we were very limited. But, you know, one thing we'd sing is like Joe Hill. You know, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. Or trying to think, what songs do we know? You know, you know, and uh, you know, people would sing the, the Power to the People from the Black Panther party and stuff to teach people power to the people. You know, stuff like that but you're like really straining the limits to so like well our revolutionary culture is not that developed usually, you know? <laughs> or what we have is not even all that good you know <laughs> but um but yeah so the, the one there was this, this uh come, mainly taking us in trying to help us trying to teach us and at the same time telling us telling us about constantly sort of telling you about what life had been like under the old system and what life was like now and what difference it made um, like that, we worked actually with the uh, Iron Girls Brigade in Dodge Eye. and uh, that that was a group which actually had really struggled. You know, the whole question, of "Women hold up half the sky." That even though this was a slogan that was said, it was actually not really taken to heart. And there was another saying that was like, "If a man smokes just even if he even, if a man smokes even one pipeful of tobacco less a day, he'll do as much as a woman can do in a day." You know, because you want to smoke and resting, whatever. So if, if he even just smoked one less, then he would do as much as a woman did a day. So the iron girls went up against this, and they actually like, you know, we can actually do uh, what men can do, and we can do more, and we can contribute to socialism and, and, and sort of, and, uh, and and it was really like a, 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 a there was a lot of struggle about that, a, t- a tremendous amount of resistance and sort of like. Uh, It's kind of by the time we got there, I think, that they were really upheld and promoted, but there had been a lot of um, feeling that this was not right, you know, that this... And and actually, apparently, there was even struggle from... This was part of earlier, there had actually been... I don't think so much in Dajai, but in other areas, there had even been resistance from... In different places, there was resistance even within the party to that, you know, kind of uh, like, oh, you shouldn't strain yourself, you know, you should work, but you should contribute, but don't contribute too much, because... Let's face it. You're only women. You can't do as
0: much as a man can do. That sort of thing. Was any of that conflict apparent when you were there?
1: Um, some of it was, and I didn't, re- I didn't really get it at the time because I wasn't, I really wasn't that sophisticated when I went over. I mean, I was an anti-war activist. I was 18 years old. I was an anti-war activist. I was a pacifist, and I was kind of like, God, this is great. This is wonderful. This is fun. You know, I love this. You know, <laughs> um, but. There were a few things. I mean, one was this one was this thing about the tour director and where he wanted us to go. It was very, he was very visibly upset every single time we argued to do something that connected us more with the people. And that was one thing that showed. Um, I think another thing that uh, wasn't as obvious to me then, but looking back, it's sort of part of it too, is the, is the way that people would say, "Well, this used to happen. We used to think this, but now we think this." You know, it was a very like. It was actually, the lectures and talks tended to present it in a very, um, like, everything is fine now, you know, <laughs> in sort of way, as opposed to even like, well, we're still working on this, or we have to struggle, you know, we have to improve more in this area or something like that. There was a little bit of a, that was then, and that was all those bad people, and that was the capitalist rotors, but now we're on this, firmly on the socialist road, and it was like, sort of this kind of covered up kind of thing in a way of just, you know, present it wanting to present yourself totally, you know, uh, free of any problems. But the other, I think the other thing that, one of the things that struck us at the time was uh, our last night there, um, we were going back through, we were going back through Shanghai. No, is that right? No, we must have gone back through Canton. We had to go back through Canton because uh, we entered and left through Hong Kong. So um, we ate our last night at a rather fancy hotel and the hotel manager would not allow our translator to eat with us. And he said because Chinese can't eat with foreigners. And it was a real like, throwback to pre liberation thinking. You know, it was actually kind of like, these are foreign guests and you treat them well, which means that Chinese, no Chinese eat, have to eat in the, in the back room. So they separated our translator from us, and she was in tears, I and mean, she was crying, and she was like saying, I can't believe this, this is your last night, I've been with you the whole trip, you know, they won't let me eat with you, this is awful. And then, uh, also later, I mean, I was looking, reading Roxanne Whit- Whit- Whitkey's book about uh, Chang Ching, and I recognized the same translator as being Chang Ching's, one, in one of Chang Ching's uh, core of people around her. So I mean, it wasn't like she was, a low-level, you know, person, but it was clearly like she was clearly assigned to us because we were like a new thing, you know. And yet she, even she, could like she actually get into a situation where they wouldn't allow us to eat, her to eat with us. And I, I think there were other things too, but like, you know, uh, mostly at the time, you know, it was sort of a, it was a little bit like all that's past. This is now. We're all we're all on the socialist road, and we couldn't, you didn't really have all the sophistication to pick up all this stuff, you know.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about how the delegation was organized in the U.S., and what section, and and who in China was in charge of coordinating it and moving it around?
1: Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, as I say, Carmelita Hinton, who at that point was 75 or something like that. Uh, was the 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 pitch on the program was I wanna bring my grandchildren to China and friends and, and, and a bigger grouping of friends. So it was it was um,
0: That was her it, pitch to who?
1: To she I mean I think she asked Bill, who at that point was in China. Bill was back in China at that time. And Bill's sister lived in China and and, and, and still did I mean maybe still does. I think she does still but she she had gone over pre-liberation and stayed there because they thought that she was a nuclear physicist and that she'd given a secret atomic bomb to the Chinese and so she actually couldn't come back to the U.S. So she she lived in China all those years from liberation to like when we went and over and, and afterwards she had married uh, there either her husband was uh, American too so I mean I don't, I, I'm not sure when they married uh, maybe they both came over together they'd both been there a long time and they had uh, raised their son there who was Fred Angst who was uh, 17 or 18 at the time. I mean so they've been you know he was, grew up in China. Um, but Carmelita I think she honestly started it thinking in her head as their grandchildren. Bill was over there. She relayed the message through Bill who then got in contact I believe with Joe and Lai. I think Joe and it's my guess I'm not 100% sure of this but I think that Joe and Lai was the sort of our uh, patron saint. <laughs> and I, I think that because, um, partly because the Hintons were kind of close to Joe and Lai. I mean, both Bill himself, sort of like Joe and Lai, and also Joan was very enamored of Joe and Lai. Um, but also the Americans in Beijing at that time, We all, all of us, when we got to Beijing in October, all the Americans that were there at that time had a meeting with Joe and Lai. So we had a meeting with... Um, there was our group and it was also Jack Belden who wrote China Shakes the, wor- shakes the World. Um, there were some other people that at the time I remembered their names or knew their names or whatever and actually right now I don't remember who they were. But they, they were China figures. I mean actually even when they said their names I said oh I, I've read that book or I know who that person is. So there were people who, and they were not, some of them lived in China but some of them were visiting China and whatever but they were all Americans in China. And then Joe and I gave a talk to us that basically said, really was talking about the opening to the West. Was talking about um, that, in fact, you know, for many years we haven't known people from your country, uh, but we have a need to have people from your country come here and get to know us and we warmly welcome the American visitors and uh, it's part, you know, they explained it as part of internationalism, which is kind of how I understood it at the time. It was kind of a people-to-people friendship. You know, but it, was, it would be a good thing for China if more American people knew what was happening in China. And I actually didn't understand at the time that it was also part of defending against the Soviet Union. I just didn't have that in my radar at all. But it obviously, was it was part of it, the strategic move of like this is what we need to do. Um, I I don't I, I think he was he was very aware that we were there, and I think stuff would have gone back to him and and. Uh, I don't I, I also think that as I say, I think of the translator one of our translators I'm pretty sure was one of Chongqing's Ching's people. So I don't I think it was kinda of known, you know, that we were there at least. And they picked up the tab for all of our travel and that once we got there. I mean, we paid our way over, but once we were there we didn't pay for anything while we were there.
0: And was the was the trip undertaken with the permission of the United States government?
1: No. No. Actually it was it was illegal at the time. I mean technically speaking I get I'm sure that the US had decided to in various ways look the other way or something but at the time that I went it was still on the passport that it was illegal to enter c- certain countries of which the people Republic the China was one so that's why my passport was stamped twice entered Hong Kong entered Hong Kong you know we, we never officially entered China you know it was kind of you know yeah. which my father I mean again this is like but my mother was kind of like when I said the request from Carmelita came to my mother, who conveyed it to me, and I said yes, and of course my mother was like, well, if she says yes, she's gone. My father was kind of like, she shouldn't go, it's illegal, she's, you know, she's a, she's a sweet little Quaker girl, she's, you know, it'll be, it'll be, a, you know, dangerous, you know, it'll be a very bad influence on her. He actually really opposed my going, and between me and my mother, we just sort of prevailed. I went, which he never really got over either, <laughs> especially since I came back a, a raving lunatic cult person. <laughs> it really bothered him.
0: <laughs> so, was this uh, was this trip a forerunner in any way of the U.S. China People's Friendship Committee?
1: Never, never, no connection. I mean, it was similar and it had similar things to it, but it, it had it didn't, U.S., China, I don't know even who organized it or whatever, but I mean it kind of grew up on its own and it had its own life and it had its own politics and it was an organization, and we weren't that, so we didn't cause it, we didn't relate to it in any way.
0: Was that, did that exist at the time already? I don't think so. Okay. I don't
1: think, I don't think it did.
0: Can you talk some about, um, and you've you've talked about this a little bit already, um, but could you more specifically get into this question of um, what sort of freedom you had to talk to anybody you wanted to or to move around and go places of your own will?
1: Yeah. I mean, people ask, actually, uh, we, we did have, we had a team of translators that was with us, and then a teeny bit into the trip, which was not maybe two weeks in, by the time we got to Dodge, I certainly, maybe, maybe before that, the Hintons came and joined us, too. So at that point, it was Joan, Sid, and, and Fred traveled with us. And then actually much later, we also met up with Bill and uh, Karma, his daughter. But that was later, later. That was like towards the end. Um, but we, uh, it, 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 there was, n- I, mean, I mean, there was basically people would, we would have a discussion with people about, uh, right from the very beginning, we would sort of asked, where do you want to go? Where do you want to see? Um, and people put forward some ideas, some people that knew more about what was going on in the Cultural Revolution and that, you know, actually argued for certain things. Um, but like, for instance, even when we were in Dajai, uh, we, uh, we didn't actually, we, I'm trying to think of who who, re- who recommended it or how it came about, but at any rate, uh, we sort of had a choice on doing a day trip. And um, some of the translators argued against that we shouldn't do it because it was too difficult, and too dangerous, whatever. But then some of the other people said, no, we really, really want to do it. It would be a good, good thing to do. There was a brigade that was like a day trip, a day walking trip from Dajai. So anyway, that, the people who were like very strong voice in our group went out and we got to do this against sort of the recommendation of the, the older you know, cadre who was like guiding the, the tour, the group. And uh, we did, it was a walking tour. We went on a, a, a road that uh, you could only travel by donkey, or mule, and that there'd been no trucks on and basically people didn't really, there wasn't that much traffic. And we went up this very mountainous place. And we went up to a village way, way up in the mountains. And uh, and they also couldn't have known that we were coming. I mean, actually, they got a little teeny bit of advance notice by, when we got there that, No, I think somebody went ahead just to say they're coming, they'll be here in a day or something like that. But we got to this village that then, you know, talked about all these questions too, like, you know, what they've been through before liberation, what the, you know, the path of, you know, organizing, all this stuff, right? But what struck me was that in this really remote village that had very little technology and and nobody had been there and you could only get there by this road or whatever, uh, people turned to us and said, so how's Huey Newton doing? You know, it was, it was kind of like, and how did they know? They, they had a radio and they would get um, the newspapers, you know, and th- they knew from the Chinese newspapers who Hugh Newton was. You know, so I, That just really impressed me because it was like kind of like there were people in the United States who wouldn't have known <laughs> who Hugh Newton was at the time. So it was kind of, it was, there was just a level of interest and involvement. But we had that happen several times, where we got actually to argue for certain things, where we got to say, no, we want to go here, we want to go there, and and basically, anything we argued for, we got. And uh, But also, um, many of our talks were very spontaneous, because they were just in the course of daily life. Like Clearly, if we were out working in the fields, maybe, as I said, we happened to be working a lot with the Iron Girls, and they were a very developed political team, but... When you were um, in the hotels, you weren't necessarily the people. People cleaning the hotels were not necessarily the most politically advanced, but you would you'd be able to ask them things about their life and what they thought about it. And then then later when we worked at the factory, the same thing. We would actually like you have off time. You have like time that you're working, and time you're going places, and time you're just hanging around. Well, we'd be hanging around with people from China, and we would ask them questions about their life and stuff like that. So. Uh, we get, we just pull one of the translators over and just say, you know, translate what they're saying, whatever.
0: Were you able to speak any Chinese at the time?
1: Um, we we tried we tried to learn some stuff. We didn't really learn very much. We didn't lo- mainly learned political slogans, and we could say down with U.S. imperialism, down with Soviet revisionism, down Chinese Khrushchev. Uh, victories of the Chinese people along the term Mao. Uh, you know, there's definitely phrases that we know, but, and you also got to recognize some things just because you, if you hear enough lectures day after, like, jugga, 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 <laughs> it's like, so that's what it's like, I, I forget now what it means, but it's like just, it's sort of a um kind of word, <laughs> you know, that they do in Chinese. It's like certain words that they just say all the time, but you, you know. We learned the words of certain songs,
0: stuff like that. We've already got into this question quite a bit, but I'm going to ask it just in case you have more to say about it. But what was the sort of sense of different lines in the Chinese Communist Party that you got when you traveled?
1: Well, one thing was, uh, again, there's people. There was, there was, a, I'd say, there was two people in particular who were like on a trip who were like just a lot more sophisticated than I was. Uh, One of them at the time was a member of the Revolutionary Union and one of them was Hinton's nephew who later died. Actually, he died in a swimming accident off of Cape Breton about 10 years 10 years later or something like that. Um, So, but, but, you know, they were really, they just sort of knew a lot about what was going on and uh, one of the things that they noticed, like we had been in China, I think I think we were there a week, maybe two weeks, um, because I, could, I don't know if it was mid-August or end of August we went. But they almost immediately noticed that there there was no mention of them um, down. They they saw it um, they saw it right away. They saw it in the, in the newspapers and. They, the, what's
0: the daily thing? The
1: Faizier Review? Yeah. Revenue yeah. About yeah, and Rebound. People's Daily. yeah. They saw, it, they saw it in that, uh, and they noticed it right away in terms of when people were talking to us that they didn't mention his name. And so they said, did you notice that? Did you notice that? Something's happened. You know, they're not mentioning Lynn like, yeah. Um Which at the time didn't mean that much to me, really. But they never, ever, all the time. That So that was, we came in then. Now, Actually, all the time that I was there, which I left then in end of January, beginning of February, during that whole period, that was never talked about or explained. Um, and in fact, if anything, it, it was still kind of—I uh, mean, it was a, really the People's Liberation Army was definitely, you know, the hot stuff everywhere we went. You know, during that whole period, which I guess there was a, just a lot of struggle going on there. That was a fairly. Uh, I, I think there'd be a lot of stuff that you wouldn't you wouldn't see. There was still, there was kind of more opaque to the unsophisticated eye, um, but particularly every, you know every, it was like the whole the slogans which included that you know the, the, the workers the workers, peasants, and soldiers was definitely still like the main main thing. Talking about the role of the PLA and, and, and what they had done and why they were so important that was like a really big thing throughout the whole time. Um, so we we didn't really get into that that much and uh, I think more I just I just think more the little 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 things you know like just just like I say the one thing that happened with the hotel the thing about the tour but also um, also sometimes people would say stuff well actually one the one I picked up on the most because I think I was sensitized to that at that point was, was around the question of women you know sometimes you sometimes people would say things in a certain way and um, then say, you know, but it but it, it, really is true that women can't do as much as men. Or they'd, they'd say different things or whatever, you know, and you are kind of like oh, they would indicate that there was just not uh, you know, not unity <laughs> with that whole thing.
0: <laughs> How were you and people in your group thinking about the significance of the Cultural Revolution uh, at the time of your trip and then uh, after the trip, uh, both immediately and, and uh, sort of over the years?
1: Mm. Um. One is, even though I had the background that I had, and even though I'd known China and all that, I i very, one is I very clearly remember being, like, uh, someone into not, you know, consciously. But, like, when I first went there, it was like, you're not gonna fool me, you know, I'm not gonna be taken in by your propaganda. You know, not, I mean, I had to be open and op- of goodwill to China, but it was like, show me, you know, kind of thing. So, basically, any time, you know, I, I can remember the difference between when I first saw revolutionary operas and ballets within the first weeks that we got there and I thought they were hokey and how I felt about them by the time I left, which is that I, they moved me incredibly. <laughs> but I can sort of understand sometimes when people from the U.S. or whatever I look at them and they go, oh, that's hokey. You know, it's like I go, you know, I'm offended, but I, I remember that I felt that way. You know, I mean, it, it's sort of it's not American sensibilities and it's also like, you have to understand what what it really means, you know. And uh, uh, like in Breaking with Old Ideas, when the woman says, "holds forth her hands and, and or whatever it is," it's, and it's like she can't, she, no, she can't write, but she she can write one phrase, and it's like Chairman Mao is in her heart or something like that. And it's like that's really hard for American audiences to take, right? It's just like, oh my God, you know. But it then there's a certain point where that actually brings you to tears and makes you cry. Because it's like you just know <laughs> what that means, you know. But it, it's a whole, it's it's a different, um, it's a different sensibility. I think when I first got, I know when I first got there, I thought cultural revolution, one is I took it as a very light thing. Like I took it as a cultural revolution and I thought it really was in the realm of culture, right, which it was. But I mean I thought it was more like um, changing some ideas, changing some things. and. And uh, you know, changing how they did their operas, and changing how they did their dances, and changing maybe how they organized some things, whatever. But I, I didn't really get the revolution part of it. I really didn't get it, and it was like uh, that part of like really overturning, some, you know, class struggle and really being uh, overturning some pretty seriously, you know, question of like really dragging China back to capitalism or going forward to socialism. Definitely didn't get that. And uh, after I was there a while, um, I mean, it was really a good month, a month and a half before I even kind of got what was happening there. I was, and that's, I think about that sometimes, too, because I think it's like, well, you know, I was seeing it, I was watching it, I was there, and I, did, I loved it. It wasn't a question, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it, but I, I didn't get it. And, and, and that what that means in terms of how long it takes people to kind of even change their thinking and... Just because you present something to somebody does not mean that they automatically get it, right? So, um, but I was just sort of taking it all in and watching all this stuff and, and, and everything. And, and uh, there was a couple things. I'm trying I, I actually, I, I don't quite know why. That's the thing, I don't remember why. But I know a turning point for me was, in the middle month, I got sick. I, had, I wasn't really sick, I had a cold or something and um they treated me like like it's just amazing anytime anybody got sick it was like it was like the most amazing treatment you know what i mean they really took care of you and uh and that that extended to i mean like when we were in the factory this is and we we're in the, in, a, in a shanghai factory we actually saw with while we were there that at one point there was a a little bit of an epidemic of the flu or something. There was was some, there was about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 people. I don't remember how many, but not that many people, maybe 10 or 12 people had the flu or
0: whatever. They shut down the whole. So right here, the, uh, cassette came to an end. I had to flip it right over. Um, and you'll be able to pick up from the context. Monica's, uh, still talking about how, uh, where she was working, where there was a flu outbreak, they sort of shut everything down and, uh,
1: just not it was sort of routine you know it was kind of like this is how we function this is how we operate you know got to take care of each other got to take care of people's health you know people come first I mean it's just so constant and uh, so that really impressed me but anyway when I was sick uh, I spent three days in the hospital well in the in the hospital which was in a major city and I'm trying to think I don't even think I was in uh, I don't think I was in either Beijing at the same height the time but I was somewhere which was a relatively major city the hospital was empty and I knew that because I went up and down the floors, you know, when I was well. I tra- traveled, you know, I, I looked up at the fo- fifth, sixth floor, and, I, you know, there's just nobody around. It was like, I was pretty much the only person in the hospital. So that, that impressed me, too. I was like, okay. But, because um, we had already met, like, barefoot doctors in the in the, communi- in the brigades and stuff like that. We had met a lot of people that were medical people. So we knew it wasn't that people didn't have medical care. And we'd gone and seen an acupuncture thing, and we'd been trained in acupuncture ourselves and a whole bunch of other stuff so we knew a lot about what was going on with the healthcare system but there I was not a hospital in the city and there was like nobody in the hospital <laughs> I think that's really interesting but more interesting to me too is like this that was my doc that was the doctors and the nurses because the doctors and the nurses came and oh how are you doing what's happening with you how are you feeling it took your temperature so and then they would sit down and, and discuss political stuff with you so um I read you know the uh the five constantly read articles and then um, while I was in the hospitals when I read the Talks in the Ammon Forum on Literature and Art. And for some reason that was kind of a turning point for me. I, I, I mean, that was like a real, like, one, I really liked it. I liked the talks, I liked the approach, I liked the whole approach to artists and intellectuals. I liked, I liked the way it described what not to do and what to do and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I just liked the feeling in it as well. It was kind of a little kind of love for the people and stuff like that. And I, I remember discussing it with my doctor, you know, I'm just <laughs> talking about these things and talking about, you know, let so say, how are you feeling today? And, and I said, well, actually, I'm feeling better now because I'm reading, and this is actually a true statement. I was like, I go, well, I'm feeling better today because I'm reading the N talks on uh, literature and art. And it's the kind of thing that, like, you would hear people say things like that in China all the time, and you would think, oh, that's a hokey thing to say, you know, that's a bullshit thing to say. Why do people say stupid stuff like that, right? But then, you know, there it was, and I was saying it, and it was like, either either I'm brainwashed, right? But also, it was, it was very real. And in a way, you actually do feel like I'm getting a bigger picture of the world. I'm getting a better idea of how things can be. And you felt better, you know what I mean? So, then we had a whole discussion about healthcare and stuff like that. But that was a major turning point for me. But anyway, so, I think I started, one, I started to get that, I did get that it was a major transformation in society. I still didn't get uh, that the amount of fierce, actual fierce struggle and fierce fighting. Not that they didn't tell us. Actually, I, I, when I was looking at my notes this afternoon, I, I realized that you'd go and in these talks and say stuff about there was a lot of struggle about this, or there was a lot of struggle about that, or there was some fierce fighting in 1968 about this. Or I think part of it was the time that I was there, that I was there in 1971, and a lot of the actual, you know, you didn't see battles, raging you didn't see, see, you know, I mean, it was like a lot less visible. Uh, a lot of it had been resolved. Um, but I really didn't get how much of an upheaval it was and how difficult it was. I, re- I didn't get that. Um, the only thing I got, I mean, the only thing I got by the time I left, uh, I said a couple of things. I said, they've got something pretty amazing going on here. You know, it's kind of incredible. It's clearly the direction of the future. And it's more advanced than anything. Like we said, We would tell them that, too, sometimes. Like, uh, I'm trying to think where else we were. Maybe it was when we were in, I think it was when we were in Dajai, even. There was at least one person who apologized for how how backward the village was, even though, uh, economically, even though it was a very advanced place, politically, right? There was somebody who said, you know, I'm sorry, like we went, we had uh, the, where you went to, in the bathroom, and the, communal to- the communal bath place, whatever. It's like has this slits in the slits in the floor, You know, you squat and you shit in the, in the slits. And we uh, there was like a, a village bathhouse, and we would take a bath once a week. Um, and uh, they had one radio for the village. And things like that, you know. So somebody was saying, oh, you know. And that would have been a line struggle, really, that I didn't, I, I mean, that would have been a line struggle, really, but Someone said, oh, we're so poor, we're so poor, right? And uh, and we said to them, no, you're like, you may not have material things, but you are like way more advanced than what we have in the US. You know, this, you, you, really, the way your social system, and how you deal with each other, how you interact with everything, it's just like a lot more advanced than, than what we have. And then I didn't even understand that statement. I understood that when I was there, but I didn't understand that until going out of China. We stopped for three days in India. And then I really, really got it. I got the, and I was like, people people coming up to us and begging and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I was like, oh, this is China before liberation. You know what I mean? It was like, it, the conscience was really sharp. It wasn't just that they were more advanced, you know, than the US, which they were, but they like really leaped, you know, through all this in such a short period of time. Um, but a couple things I knew coming back, I said, well, you know, they're, they're more advanced. They've got, got something going on here that's kind of incredible that people need to know. They use this philosophy called Marxism-Leninism. That's very important to check out and try to understand. And the only way I can ever like repay my debt for being allowed to be part of this is to try to make revolution in this country. And I knew a few other things too. I knew that like sort of you had to like serve the people, but I wasn't sure what that meant. That meant different, you know. That was kind of more like be good to people or something. That was kind of like serve the people was like be a nice person and be good to people. And, um, you know, then, but I, and I remember coming back to college, and people asked me about it, and I say, "Well, I, I know that." They say, "Well, how are you going to make a revolution in this country?" And I'm like, "Well, I know that the proletariat is a very important part of that." And they say, "Well, what's the proletariat?" And I'm like, well, "I don't know, but I'll find out." <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like it was it was kinda like that's really kind of where I was at when I came back, though. You know, I mean, I, I still wasn't a communist or a revolutionary. I well, maybe I was a revolutionary. I knew that what they had was better than what was going on here. and I, I, Actually, I guess when I even left to go over, I was probably an anti purist So it was kind of like, this is bad. That's good. They have this philosophy. This is how they did it. What does it mean for here? I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, but we'll try to find out. We'll try to hook up with other people that, that, that are doing this. And, uh, you know, part of it is, obviously, I had a, you know, I think I had a great... Great time and a great experience. I I don't think I, I there was a combination though of like sometimes people think well you you know like my daughter would say to me oh well you were just brainwashed and I was like, no I don't think so I do think I, I saw the advanced places so obviously and it was at a great time so obviously it's going kind to of, you know you, if you say all of what was going on was what was happening in those places that would not be correct and um, Bill Hinton kind of makes that in his book Shen Fan. you know it's kind of like the Longbow Village it really some of the more backward places had a pretty rough time. Um, and certainly over the years I've followed a lot of the books that have been written about the different things in the cultural evolution, stuff like that. And I'd say the only thing, that I've, one thing I've gotten, I've, I've gotten more of a sense of the complexity and the, de- and the, and the deepness and the difficulty. And, and the pain, you know, and sort of a recognition that there is some pain involved in this, which I don't think I really conceded before. Um, but on the other hand, if anything, it also makes it stand out even more. You know, it's kind of like, this was an incredible leap for humankind. You know, it really, like, leap, leap, like, huge gulfs of decades, centuries of, you know, of human existence, you know, and it went to a whole future place. It didn't go everywhere, it didn't, wasn't, you know, didn't complete everything, and it wasn't thorough, and we still have to do a lot more, but it was just, it actually stands, sort of stands out sharply, as what an incredible leap it was, you know, in terms of all that stuff.
0: Was your level of understanding of what was going on with the Cultural Revolution about the average for the group that you were in?
1: Oh, I think so. I think mo- it was. I mean, I think it was pro- probably relatively and different people, you know, have different understandings. But I, I, I think, I think, yeah, I think most people got it about that level. Because um, you asked originally about the composition of the group, it was a. Uh, so there was like. Three, four, four of the Hinton nieces and nephews. There was me, who was a friend of a Carmelita from the peace group. There was this guy from Reading, who was who was part of the RU. Um There was uh, a, a guy who was the son of the woman in the Philadelphia peace, you know, whatever. Um, there was there was a uh, two people who had been students at Putney and there was two, there was one, there's two black women on the trip. One was from Reading, and one was from Washington, Philadelphia. I'm not sure how they, you know, who were they hooked up with. They were very, uh, you'd have to say, at this point, you would say very nationalist, which again, I didn't recognize that. I didn't, that was all part of it. That was all part of the 60s. And it was all part of like, that was just a really good thing, you know. But they were very, very conscious, not only the black nation, but also like, a, they sort of had, uh, you know, they had the black power slogans, they had, you know, certain things, whatever. And, and they were also, like, critical of people just for being white, a lot of times, you know. It was a certain, it's like, they weren't always right. <laughs> but they also got conceded to a lot, because it was like, well, yeah, but if, they, if they're black and we're white and they say this, then we, sh- we probably are wrong. And, you know, there's a lot of that going on within the group. Um, there's a lot of internal tensions within the group, and then part of how we would try to resolve it was we'd read on contradiction and we'd read, you know, something and try to have a group meeting and try to resolve it um but i part of how i think that my understanding was about average and maybe it was less than average but i think was about average was that um not too many people after they came back actually became active in this country uh really I don't know i know for sure out of that whole group i, I know of three of us you know who, who, who Actually, the guy I was mentioning from the RU is still definitely very active. Uh, but there was another one—the women from Baltimore—was active for a while. And the other people, I—I don't—I didn't even—I don't even know what they did. You know, uh, I don't know what they—you know—so like, what did, what did you do with having been there and seen this? And you know, I just—it seems to me that like they had a sort of an appreciation for what was going on, but they didn't really they couldn't have gotten it, you know, in some kind of fundamental way, like, because to get what was going on there, you'd have to say, i got to try to do this too, and it's going to be different, you know, but I know when I, even when I first came back, I mean, you know, part of what I really wanted to do was just talk to people about what i had uh, seen, I really, and I did that for a little while, and then trip, the talks, and college circuit talks, and I everything mean, like that, and talked about, you know, my trip, and whatever, so what I did for a little while, but that, that was part of it, it was like, this is happening, with this is happening over there, and this is happening over here, and how are we going to bridge this gap, you
0: know? On this delegation, did the RU exercise any sort of influence or try to, or was it just sort of some guy who was along?
1: He was some guy who was along. I didn't really, uh, I sort of got to know him, uh, like, a couple years later, you know? Uh, At the time, he was, I considered him somebody who was like, a little more knowledgeable. It was like with hint and nephew. You know, the two of them were like kind of like, they would say, oh, Dajai or oh, this, or oh, that. They would have not, they knew who Lim Giao was, you know, that sort of thing. But they didn't really, so they influenced us by just talking in the group. But other than that, I didn't, like, I didn't really know what the RU was. I knew that he was from the RU, but I didn't know what the RU was. You know, so in that sense, there wasn't an influence on the group.
0: So they weren't making a concerted effort to influence the group then?
1: No, definitely not. Right, right. There was actually a meeting of. Uh, there was a meeting of. This is you could say. Just, the only thing I was just saying part about Hinton probably shouldn't be repeated. But um, but this is actually fine because Kim talks about it in his book, the memoirs. But the, I was in China the same time he was, and we actually met um, the same time that there was the Americans meeting in, uh, in July. The, there was an RU delegation there that was from the Central Committee that um, met with... They didn't meet with Joe and I at the same time they did, not meet with Joe and I. Uh, and so then we saw them again later. Like, actually, I, I, I remember seeing Bob and Dajai. I didn't, again, it didn't mean anything to me at the time, you know. But he came through Dajai and he was like, oh, we know you. We saw you at the meeting and da-da-da-da, you know, like that. So they, they actually were, I mean, they were definitely having, meet, you know, like, uh, delegations and stuff like that, Even you know, at that time. There was a lot of people, though. I mean, I met Huey in China, too. I met Huey in uh, Canton. So, I mean, it really was a, it was just, as, after the ping pong table, ping pong team, and before Nixon, it was just that, I mean, I guess it continued. There was an opening for the West that continued, but this was really, like, a more... You know, it was a more formative period, you know, since when they were first trying to do that and they didn't really know what they were doing, so all kinds of people came through.
0: Was Huey Newton part of the Black Panther Delegation?
1: No, it was just by himself.
0: Can you talk about meeting Huey in Canton? Um,
1: yeah, well, yeah, I didn't, I mean, it was kind of... (laughs) Actually, uh, we just went up to him, we said, hi, Huey. and actually it was the, the two black women on our team that first recognized him. And then uh, they said, oh, that's Huey Newton. So we went over to him and then we said, basically it was one of those like, um, well, we really admire the work that you're doing and the work of the Black Panther Party. Oh, thank you very much. That's kind of you, whatever. Okay, good seeing you. Goodbye. I mean, it was, it was really that kind of a meeting. It was <laughs> hey, I saw Huey the other day. <laughs> but it was enough that you knew that there were people, you know. Coming to China, I mean, I was like, that was what you did. That was the thing to do.
0: Um, going back to this question about summing up the the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. At what point, after you got back, did it become? Well, what what were the various stages of development? meaning of the cultural revolution to you after you got back.
1: Okay, Uh, like, sort of, what changes in my thinking, or what like that, or or what did I understand about how it developed, or...?
0: Yeah, well, how did your understanding develop of, of the significance of what you had seen and in general your understanding of the importance of or your understanding of what the Cultural Revolution represented uh, as time went by
1: okay well I think the first whole section of time which uh, maybe at least went up through when Mao died or something. And I think the main thing I got or the main thing that I was trying to that I was understanding about it but was trying to apply was this question of the masses or the makers of history. I didn't really understand it in relationship I, I didn't understand the Cultural Revolution in relationship to the history of the I C M and I mean in other words I, okay. That's, that's not true I mean when I came back I first went around and I you know first I tried to talk to people about China I also tried to find Maoist groups and I actually traveled around to different cities and at that time there were all these different little Maoist collectors all over the place and there was also all these people's bookstores all over the place and it was just like you could walk into any city and you could say well, where's the Maoist? and somebody would direct you to what grouping of people there were and, and my approach at that time was kind of like I'll just keep going until I find the particular little group that I like and it's the most like me, you know, and uh, and then I'll hook up with them, and that, and then we'll just keep, you know, keep going until until revolution, right? So uh, actually, what happened, part of what happened with me was I was doing that, and uh, and I went back to school, and I also hooked up with a group that was doing stuff there, and I also hooked up with the New China Study Group, and I was doing all these, doing all these people. and it was really when I when I came to visit. Uh, the person is now my husband, but uh, he had a little collector up in Rochester. And, uh, and I explained to him what was my philosophy, you know, in terms of like, well, I'm just going to go around, travel around, see all these different little groups. And he goes, sister, I don't think you got an idea. This is not a good strategy. He says, because really, we're up against a pretty major enemy. This the system. It's a pretty big system. It's organized pretty powerfully. He says, you have to actually seek out... You have to read the programs of the, diff- the biggest different groups and you have to hook up with the one that's the most organized, that's the most, you know, has the most best strategy on how to do this. And, you know, even if there's some differences or whatever, this is sort of, we have to actually get organized because we're going to have to go do this, you know? Like, oh, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> so, I didn't, I, I wasn't how I was approaching it at all. I was approaching it like, just like, it would be a lot of fun, you know I <laughs> mean? Just go around and show, hook up with these different people. Um, but I think what I was sort of trying to put into practice and what I learned from it was this question around the Masters in the in History and kind of, and also what is the proletariat and sort of, the question of learning from the people, because uh, I was raised and trained as an intellectual, and so, and I was at Cornell University at the time and everything, so I really didn't know very much at all about the actual life of the people in this country. I just didn't, I just didn't know that, but also I wouldn't have known that that was worth knowing you know, because that wasn't my training. My training was all like, you know, you gotta be in the realm of ideas and you gotta, people who think with their minds they're pretty incredible, but everybody else's shit. You know, and all that, so this was kind of a whole sort of way of looking at people, you know, and understanding that um, people know some shit and people can do some shit, you know what I mean? And um, so, you know, going into the, I wanted, I started, I, I I mean, I, sort of, I did work, I, I went to work at a hospital, I learned from the hospital workers there. Um, just, just kind of, just, I don't know, like it actually ended up influencing a lot of stuff that I did where you really were just trying to get to know the life of the people, You're trying to understand, like I did not know that much about the history or the life of black people. You know, I didn't know what it was like to be a worker, you know, all this kind of stuff, so that there was a, a number of years, but what I was doing was engaging in social practice, I guess, or just, you know, getting to know people and getting to understand what was going on. Um, then I think in, around really when Mal died, uh, up until that point, life had been fairly simple and straightforward, you know, it was just a matter of time because it's so clearly such an advanced system and it's so clearly such a better thing. and and that's the way the whole world was going and everybody was making revolution and we were clearly headed that way, you know, so it was a matter of time and it was just gonna happen and it was kinda easy, you know. And then Mao died, but also uh, all this stuff started coming out about, you know, different people. Not only he died, but the Gang of Four was overthrown. And then in the course of that, there was all this stuff about, you know, these people had, these capitalist rulers had, had taken over and just as he had said that as they might do, which up until that point, we had always thought that was just a nice saying he had. You know, it's kind of like, you know, he's, he's kind of warning us, he's saying some nice stuff, you know. Well, you know, blah, 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 you know, if this happened and the capital traders could easily rig up the 8-point work system, whatever it is, the 8-system, you know, the work point system and do this and that. Thanks, ma, thanks for letting, giving us a warning. Yeah, we'll be careful, you know, we won't do that. <laughs> really, that's very he just. He's saying he's nice because I remember being in discussions with people, and they'd say, you know, well this is happening and that's happening, and this is being overturned and that's overturned. I'm like, oh worry, don't worry. The Chinese people are revolutionary. They're all Marxist-Leninists. It's it's not a problem. Well, don't worry. Yeah, some stuff's happening, but they'll figure it out. They're the right road. So then it was like clear that there was a little more serious problems, you know, and. Uh, really, I mean, I didn't know what to make of it, you know, and, and I, and, uh, pretty fundamentally went into denial for, a for like from 76 to about, I don't know, sometime well into the 80s. I mean, I know, I know that there is an analysis, you know, that the party made. It was like, I didn't not, dis- I didn't disagree with, the analysis that the party made of that, you know, the the legacy of Mao Zedong and the, uh, uh, you know, Mao makes five and you know, sort of the whole, you know, basically, the, I I I agreed that they they had been taken over by capitalist voters. and I even sort of understood like in the lot in the legacy of Mao Zedong and, uh, in the know, loss legacy, it sort of explained some of the conditions that that made this possible, but I couldn't understand it. I really couldn't understand it. I was like, I don't know how it happened. This is pretty much impossible. You know, I just really don't get it. And the only thing I can hope for, and that hope continued for a very long time, was that somehow it would just reverse itself. You know, I mean, It's like, okay, there's ups and downs in a revolution. I struggled. I got overthrown, but clearly they're going to come back. So then, when I say I was in denial, I mean, in that sense, it was like... Uh, so probably sometime... In the mid '80s, like at least by '84, '85, '86, you know, by that time there was like this wave of, you know, like anti-cultural revolution stuff coming this way. So just like you know, all these horror stories of the cultural revolution. Well, at first, of course, it was rather easy to dismiss them because you say, you know, I mean, some of them are pretty are pretty clear. You know, like this person hat does actually some of them you can. You just kind of wave away you know a little bit by saying like you know oh this person never went along with what was going on this person kept quiet while this stuff was going on and this person didn't you know clearly does that the piano player who was forced to go to the countryside and like their knuckles were made cracked or whatever by digging in the dirt and so you know sometimes you can sort of say well i feel sorry for the person but really you know in the scheme of things this is not the most critical most terrible thing that could ever happen to somebody um So there's a lot of, like, both dismissal and denial. Um, Mainly, the more I try to engage in the class struggle in this country, the more I just realize at least it's complicated. You know, which is, in other words, just in the sense that uh, people don't give up their old ideas very easily. People don't really like to be struggled with. People don't really like, um, you know, people will shut up rather than say what they think you know, if they're going to be struggled with, you know. um, There's a lot of stuff where a lot of people go along with whatever's going on at the time and that the appearance of it is sort of like, well, that's, you know, what people think and believe, but it's not necessarily, you know, something that they'll be able to stand up for and, and fight for. Also, also the thing I'm kind of wondering about now is I can only really ever remember people talking about socialism. I really don't remember... People talking about communism. In other words, there was a very clear thing of like we're in a socialist, you know, country, and like, and it was also pretty clear that you either go forward to communism or you go back to capitalism. But I really don't remember people talking about I'm trying. To, we're on the road to communism. You know, what I mean, which, which now I'm beginning to think that's somewhat significant because it, it, it's kind of like there is a question like, well, where are you? You know, how much. How much and on what level did people grasp uh, eliminate the floor walls, you know, you know, and all this stuff, right? I mean, how, how much was that even part of? The, people were very politically conscious and people were very politically engaged. But even there and even then, you know, how deep was that even for the majority of people, you know? And and so I'm, I'm sort of get I got that sense uh, like in the last five five years, ten years. Well, maybe five years, especially, but that um, there's levels and there's levels of what people understand and what people put out and what people you know are saying and what people are, understand, what people go along with, and that you know what made it kind of incredible was this great big leap and that there's all these people participating in it and it was really raising the level of people politically on a vast scale. On the other hand, um, how you know it had to go further. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, it really had to, people's you know people's grasp of Marxism and Leninism was not that deep. You know, I mean, it actually wasn't that strong. Which is all, and then when you add to that, that there definitely were was class struggle, even within the party, and there were mistakes made. And, you know, people weren't able to actually either oppose those mistakes, or sum up those mistakes, or fight against those mistakes, or, you know, I mean, all that kind of stuff, you sort of add it all up, and you're like, it was a quite incredible, unbelievable experience, but it really did run up against some limitations, too. And uh, So I guess uh, that's sort of where I'm
0: at now. So, you mentioned that you know you ran into these other groups of Americans there. Yeah. Uh, what other foreigners did you run into, or were you aware oh, yeah, of there? We Actually, we did run
1: into a lot of foreigners a lot of different nationalities. Uh, we didn't run into so many while we were at Dajai actually, or even when we were in Shanghai. But when we were in Beijing, we just like, we got to meet a lot of people. Um, there was a Filipino group that we interchanged with. Um, there was an Iranian group. There was an African group. Um, I'm trying to Korean group. We saw a Korean opera, we saw a Korean da- dance. Um, those are probably the main ones I remember. But like they would teach us our, their songs, we would teach them our songs, you know, that type of thing. We like, would actually spend some time together.
0: Did you have any interaction with any of the foreigners that were uh, resident in Beijing, uh, working with foreign languages press? or? any of the, uh, foreign language editions of, uh, Peking Review or China Reconstructs?
1: Um, not that I was aware of. In was th- did have that one meeting of Americans. Um, I think I met, like, I, for instance, like, Hinton's first wife also lived in China. And I think that's what she did. I think she did some foreign language press stuff. Um, and we met her once, but uh, not to really have a discussion with, um, and I, I didn't. No, actually, a lot of the names, uh, I, I, the you know the people that wrote books and stuff like that, a lot of them I wrote read their books after I got back.
0: Did you have any sense of how China's approach to delegations from the U.S. or from European countries would differ, might or might not have differed from its approach to delegations from? Uh, from third world countries? Or is that is that a too artificial of a breakdown with it should this be broken down into other different types of delegations or huh. relations with people coming from different types of countries? Huh.
1: Um I don't think I I don't think I, I had enough to know. Um, I certainly didn't get, a, like, just of the ones that we met, the Africans, the Filipinos, and Koreans, um, we didn't get any sense of differences at that time. In other words, it was kind of like all one big happy family. You know, <laughs> it was sort of like, we got the sense that. Like, we we had the sense that they were both treated with respect and allowed the freedom and allowed to do, you know, the same types of things we were allowed to do and that sort of thing, that they were allowed to inter- intermingle with us and we could intermingle with them. We didn't get any sense of any differences.
0: What? How would you characterize those delegations that you ran into as being once tied to political groups or more people-to-people type exchanges?
1: People-to-people exchanges students actually most of them were students.
0: And the Korean group was from which Korea
1: I was from North Korea yeah. Yeah. And, and their, their opera so their opera which was quite bad actually it was really bad. <laughs> it was like so sort of the worst stereotypical dogmatic thing you could imagine and we could recognize it you know then it was just like bad art.
0: Were you involved at all after your trip in U.S.-based solidarity work for China?
1: I wanted to. be. I, I actually really did want to be, but I I wasn't. Uh, I, only for the first. Uh, uh, right after I came back, I you know I tried to get the group that had gone together, and I tried to I, I suggested we write a book, um, and then immediately after, like for that oh maybe that whole next actually went a little bit longer than that, but certainly that's, that summer to that fall I did campus speaking, you know, different places and, and actually there was an active, there was, a, a, there was a, enough people who were actively wanting people to speak about China that it, it didn't take much. I mean people would actually just call you up and say, oh I heard that you went, and, you know, can you come out to Illinois and can you, you know, I, I, I did like several campuses. Um, they would pay you an and that sort of thing. I was actually, I did that quite a bit. Um, that continued, let's see, so we got back in February of 72, that would have continued almost up through about October of 72. And then in October of 72, I got more connected with the group which was the local show union. And I was 19 at the time. And uh, there was sort of like a little bit of a this and that about, well, should you do US-China friendship stuff or should you do brigade work? And since I was 19 and I hadn't completed college, it was like, well, it'd be more useful if you did free. There was plenty of people doing US-China friendship work at the time and uh, it'd be more useful if you did student work. So I kind of didn't really, basically that was kind of it. I, I didn't really do any much anything after that. Um, I gave ta- I gave my slideshow to different people, groupings of people at different times, like more personally or whatever. But I didn't really write stuff or, or, you know, talk or anything like that. But also, from 72 through 76, it seemed like it wasn't that needed, you know. And part of the thing is when, when this argument was made, it, well, it seems like it's more necessary for you to go on campus. And, Organize young people, it all, that sort of made sense to me because at that time there were more and more and more trips going to China. There was a lot of delegate. there was workers, the RU was organizing workers' delegations to go and pretty much every time he turned around there was a delegation going to China, And plus there was other people going to China. Basically at that time the belief was that everybody would get to go to China sooner or later. My husband always thought he was going to get to go. He just figured, oh, I'll go to China sometime. And then in 1976, when I died, and he was like, no oh. <laughs> it was a closed <laughs> In a finite period, <laughs> but that was part of it too. It's just there were so many other people doing it that it didn't seem like it was as critical to do that.
0: Were these later delegations legal, or were they were these delegations still illegal?
1: I almost—I don't know for sure. I have a feeling it probably became legal. I, I'm not sure when it became legal, but um, it had to almost that because because after Nixon, how could it have? They, they had to have changed the visa status. But I'm not sure about when
0: that would really changed. There wasn't formal diplomatic recognition until 79. 79? That
1: late? Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. Huh. Um. I don't know that. I. Don't, I, I they, they were able to do it with relative ease.
0: Yeah, Clearly clear the U.S. was yeah. at least looking the other right. way. Right. right. Um. What, uh, how would people at these campuses know that you had went in order to invite you to give you an honorarium?
1: Gosh, I don't know. You know, I I, I don't remember. They uh, had to call somebody. They called somebody. Who would I get a call from? I get it. Huh. I think, I think some of them knew people who knew people on the trip. I think was some of it was like that, that there was, you know, there was word-of-mouth people that had been on the trip to these different campuses. Somehow, it's, I, I'm really not sure, somehow it got into some kind of speaker circuit or something. You know, I mean, somehow it got known that there were people who had been to China and who were willing to come talk. Because I, I would get calls from campuses that I didn't know, I didn't know anybody there. I mean, the first ones I did, I obviously did my own campus, and I also did my brother's campus, and I did a couple other things like that. And somehow, I don't know, got out in some way.
0: How many did you speak at? Uh, six, six to
1: eight. Six to eight? Yeah. And Are the blackest, black students, the other thing was, that the one place, they were disappointed because they just assumed I was black. i do not quite sure why. They've gotten their information mixed up or something. But I was actually flown out there and given an honorarium. And I was I was organized by the Black Student Association. And then when I got off the plane and they picked me up, they're like, oh, you're white. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a surprise. It, it, so, but they handled it very well, and everybody handled it very well. And they kind of, you know, didn't mind it so much. But so I think that might have been like, I know because the two women that were on the trip were black, somehow that fit into that somehow, that, that, that the
0: information was, was crossed. So I don't know how, what role they played in that. Do you, can you speak at all to how some of the U.S.-China solidarity work developed, and um, and who coordinated it in the U.S. and in China, or who it was coordinated with in China?
1: Um. I'm not that familiar with it. I, I mean, I, I knew there was obviously there's China Books, which was really. I mean, that's how we everybody got their literature and their posters and everything else. And China Books had a direct contact in China, and I don't know who that was or what circle of people that was. Um,
0: was China Books run by the Chinese government?
1: No, it was people from this country. But they had they had connections they had pretty good connections and then there was China's China books uh, there was China books New York there was uh, everybody's books San Francisco um, but they would actually like have like uh, you know they have they'd have they'd have everything they have the, the, the red books they have the, the classics they have uh, uh, the posters they would have the Mao buttons I mean most most of the you know uh, you're all your basic revolutionary literature more, more than more than was actually being produced in this country at that time you know what I mean It was like if, when people went for revolutionary literature they went for the classics and Chinese stuff and things like that so in a certain sense, China books and everybody's books were kind of your supplier for revolutionary literature in this country in the 70s 70s 70, 70, you know, 70 through 74, 75, something like that um, and U.S.-China Friendship Association was was definitely uh, a a United Front organization, I mean, it was a mass organization, it was a United Front organization. Uh, The Revolutionary Union was in it, but it wasn't even the main voice in it. It wasn't the main, it wasn't the initial organizer of it, and it wasn't the main voice in it. It actually just participated in it. And uh, there was just a lot, a lot, a lot of people in it that were um, friends of China. Of one, you know, in one way or another, just friendly, friendly towards China, or whatever. And then they would organize people to do talks and this kind of thing. So I don't know exactly who originally got it all together. And also, it lasted a long time. It lasted after the overthrow of Mao. And uh, it, it, I mean, it took a, I don't know when it died, but probably sometime in the 80s. Is
0: there anything you'd like to add? This, uh... That's pretty much the end of my prepared questions. But if there's anything, you know, important you think I'm not asking about or anything you'd like to add, please uh, please feel free.
1: Sure, the, the part that the part that and sometimes I can't even remember the different facts or sometimes I can't even remember all the different stories, but the part that um, the feeling <laughs> that I can remember and, and i guess it just really impressed me so much was this um, just unbelievable revolutionary optimism throughout all society it's a, it's it's, it's sort of like i'm trying to sometimes explain it to people and i have trouble describing it but yeah and like the way i describe it's sort of like that you know the, the feeling that people have when they come together in a demonstration that's a, that's a nice demonstration. I mean, there's some that are nasty. But, you know, it's like when you've organized for something and, you know, there's a whole bunch of people and you come together and you just sort of feel really good. You know, you feel really good towards each other and you feel really good towards, you feel conscious and you feel like you did something and you also feel like you just have good feelings towards the other people. And you're also, like, kind of picked up by a certain enthusiasm. And uh, so you're kind of mentally really stimulated and you're also like uh, you, you, I don't know, you're just on good terms with just like everybody in the world or whatever and um, and it was kind of like being like that for four and a half months you know, it, it was just like, it's actually it's, it wasn't just somewhere where you go and you feel that for a couple of hours you know, in a, in a certain context, it was like constant and it was everywhere
0: Alright That's it for our interview with Monica Shea. Next episode, we'll be back with China in the 1920s. Take care, and I'll see you then.